1: Welcome to Bitches on Comics. My name is Sarah Century. You might know me as being the host of this podcast. And also <laughs> we have another host. <laughs> Hi, I'm <laughs>
2: Essie am You might know me as being the other host. Yes. And today we are so pumped. We have a special guest who is an integral part of this podcast that you don't always get to hear on the air, but literally there'd be no podcast without her. Hey, Kate. Hey. Happy to be here. Kate Warner, tell us about yourself.
3: Oh, hi. I am an electronic musician in Denver. I have a solo project called Mirror Affairs and a band that I'm in called Churchfire. I like to tinker with electronic circuits and I like to plug things into things. (laughs) You want to do more of it, right? Yeah, so I'm in the process of learning all sorts of things like... De-embedding audio from an HDMI signal and Crestron machines. I don't know. It's all a bunch of nerdy bullshit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, had to get a new job when the entertainment industry kind of fell apart after COVID. So trying to do the thing.
2: Yeah, which is like wild. I have a, a brother-in-law who's a musician and it's just like, bye career. We'll see what happens yeah. next. Yeah, but so also, Kate, you edit our podcast. Ours is not the only podcast you are in the works of editing. I don't know how to talk about a project that's not announced yet. But well, there's a project that's not announced yet that you'll also be editing. But you're looking for additional podcast editing work. So if people wanted to be in touch or follow you or learn more, what would they What would they do?
3: Yeah, well, if anyone was interested in talking to me about audio editing their podcast, or possibly even original music content or casual sort of consultation work about microphones or had to do remote Zoom recordings or getting high quality recordings from guests with non pro setups, which is basically all of us. <laughs> you could hit me up at soundbs for you at gmail.com. Like sound bullshit for you at gmail.com. Oh, I thought it was sound
1: bees for you. Me too. Sound bitches (laughs) for you.
3: Oh, Uh, yeah. It is sound bitches for you. Yeah, actually. But (laughs) it's both. That's what's nice about it. Yeah. (laughs) And they're both not something that anyone wants to have in an invoice. But
2: (laughs) Eh, whatever. It's better than uh, when I was working at uh, an admissions office for college and someone was like, (laughs) my email is dickhole69. We were like, oh my God, what are you doing? This is a college. (laughs) Yeah, you should probably get a new email address. It's not that hard. Yeah, it's truly not difficult. Uh, Yeah, so Kate's the best. There was a very long time when I was very guilty of recording with my mic on 100. So I was screaming on every podcast. But you didn't know, did you, listener? Because Kate fixed that. I'm not saying you should do that and have Kate fix it. I don't think Kate enjoyed (laughs) fixing it. But Kate did fix it. So. You want like a skilled, badass queer person to help you with your sound. Kate's where it's at. Did we plan to have a promo? No, we did not plan to have a promo, but it just naturally flows from us.
3: It all worked (laughs)
1: out. It all came together.
2: So we are going to be talking about six horror films today that we all watched. And we each chose two of them. So we'll talk about why we chose them and what our goal was. We wanted to talk about films that maybe... You're not going to hear seven podcasts covered this week. Uh, (laughs) So, we each chose two movies for the other two folks on the call to watch. And we chose one from, like, before 2010 and one for after 2010. So something older, something newer. And we wanted to choose movies that were, like, a little bit less known, not likely to be covered on all of your your podcast episodes that are
3: spooky
2: for spooky season. I am a child and will always be a child. So here I am. But first, I would actually like to hear about from each of you, let's start with Kate, what was the first horror film you ever saw? And, like, What context did you see it in?
3: Oh, yeah. The first horror movie I saw was the Twilight Zone movie. It has a bunch of little short stories in it. And the one that stuck with me the most was the one where the guy is on the airplane and he can see the gremlin on the side of the plane. There's some man, some thing on the wing. (laughs) Yeah. It's like this terrifying, weird creature and it's chewing the plane apart. And everyone keeps trying to tell him to calm down. The scene I remember the most is when... The creature goes up to the window and he's shaking his index finger at the guy. John Lithgow. Oh, yeah, it is John Lithgow. He's good at acting all panic and sweaty.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's on his resume, I'm pretty sure.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if this was ever confirmed, but I feel like one of my brother's teenage friends terrorized me after we watched that by going outside of my window. (laughs) But my older siblings terrorized me all the time, so I don't know if I imagined it. (laughs) Of course, of course. Oh
2: my gosh, Sarah, what was the, do you remember what the first horror film you saw was?
3: Yeah, I was thinking about
1: how normal it was for other kids to terrorize their siblings and how I was friends with these two sisters that I would watch a lot of horror films with. This is just a sudden memory that I had, but I was friends with these two sisters that would always watch horror films with me, but they would like fight all of the time and just like slam doors and like always be yelling So I would be, like, eating popcorn while these two sisters constantly tried to kill each other, kind of. (laughs) Well, because you had all brothers, right? I had little brothers. So I had (laughs) brothers that were younger than me. I was mean to one of my brothers, I think, whenever I was, like, before 10, you know, as a young, young kid. But mostly I just had to take care of them. (laughs) Sucks. (laughs) But... (laughs) Yeah, the first horror film that I watched, I believe, was... It's hard for me to even remember which one it would have been because of how many that I watched, but I remember a few that stuck out. Like I remember Hellraiser sometimes in retrospect, but I mostly remember whenever I was a kid, I was really into this movie called Waxwork, which (laughs) is this film where... All of these teenagers that are assholes, basically. I guess, like, that's the only way to describe teenagers in horror, right? Is, like, they're all just a bunch of assholes. There's five of them they are assholes. But, like, this guy invites them to his wax museum and they're just like, get out of here. What are you talking about? And then this one girl's like, I want to go because she's the rebel or whatever. So she's like, I'm into wax work suddenly. And so they all go for some reason, even though one of the guys there is her ex. He's really mad at her. That she died first or what? No, because a dude dies first who is a werewolf. He goes to the werewolf wax work and then he becomes a werewolf and then he gets <laughs> shot. Um, and <laughs> little then, did you know that's, that's the real way werewolves yeah. work through <laughs> the, wax museums. <laughs> oh, my God. The... The rebel girl goes to the sexy vampire place and she kind of goes Buffy the Vampire Slayer for like 10 minutes of the movie. And then she's just like, dang it, he's just too sexy. And so she like kisses the obvious vampire (laughs) and then is just like, dang. Then she shows up later as a vampire to terrorize her ex, which is pretty cool. There's a bunch of other stuff in it where it's the good girl who shows up wearing pastel (laughs) Mm -hmm. and like long skirts. She gets spanked by the Marquis de Sade and then whipped and stuff. And so it's just really weird that I watched that whenever I was like five years old. I'm like, this is probably the first sex scene I've seen on television and it is teaching me a lot. (laughs) I remember that movie and, you know, I was addicted. I just kept coming back (laughs) again and again (laughs) to whatever the hell that movie was, but also just how like spooky. It was. I was like, this is weird. And then I was really excited about watching more horror films.
2: I love that. So, this is actually our second time recording this episode because whoopsie doodle, the file got deleted. It was my bad. So, last time, I'm pretty sure I said my first movie was Leprechaun or It, which it could be. But I'm (laughs) going to go with Gremlins. I think Gremlins, which is a horror comedy, but is very much my style. I'm a horror comedy buff. I just I love to be terrified and giggle about it. I know last week in the episode with with Steph I talked about like when they're throwing shoes the leprechaun, I don't know. There's something about getting to have a giggle in the middle of feeling really afraid that does it for me. I mean, I can't imagine most people haven't seen Gremlins. But, you know, like, it's a a mogwai. If you feed it after midnight, something bad will happen. Something bad happens. And, like, these little cute little babies become, oh, no, very gross. Like, lizard skin. Not so cute little babies. But I will always remember, (laughs) there's, like, a moment where the Gremlins are going just, like, hog wild in a toy store. Can't be toys. Yes. And I do not know why. But one of them has lipstick, is smoking a cigarette. And I think is like the situation is sort of made to make her seem like she's either, you know, slutty or a sex worker or like it's not clear. But like she's a she's, bad girl. She's the yeah, only she, girl yeah, gremlin.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. She's
2: like Smurfette of the gremlins, the evil gremlins. And for some reason, I just love her. I think she's absolutely <laughs> divine. I think she is like hilarious. And I want to see her movie. So I remember there wasn't a lot of what I would call mm, parenting in my household as a child. So I was just watching these movies. I think, Sarah, last time you talked about having insomnia and, like, wandering out and, like, just watching a movie. And that was totally me as a kid, too. Or, like, my mom would be up late and would listen to the TV really loud because children aren't people. And I would, like, creep out and, like, watch it over her, like, shoulder from behind the couch kind of thing. Yeah, so gremlins, though, I got real positive memories of gremlins. I remember being like, I would like to get a gremlin. Is that somehow a problem? Because I will put water on it immediately. And then I'll have so many gremlins. Which is, I think, why my parents were like, thank God gremlins aren't real.
3: (laughs) Right it's a nice movie because it's somewhere in between it's not too scary for a kid but it's scary enough for a kid yeah I remember being quite frightened
1: yeah there's parts what about the staircase that yeah. scene oh my god there's so many scenes in that movie where I'm like no thanks but then like <laughs> Dick Miller stars in it and he has that like goofy smile and stuff and you're just like aww and then you see Gizmo and you're like aww exactly Gizmo's so cute this is actually a very disturbing movie and then also <laughs> Gremlin. Too is extremely disturbing. Yeah. that's when they all go through the transformations. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh my god, you're right. That is Gremlins too. Yeah, I just remember being very like it was like if Ewoks turned dark, and that was a good <laughs> a good thing for me to be thinking about. You know, <laughs> like. These cute things that have a dark underbelly. I don't know. I love gremlins. I want to go watch it right now, now that I've talked about it.
3: Yeah. Oh, man. I still remember that scene where the mom battles that one in the kitchen and puts it in the (gasps) microwave. Oh, my God. That was so scary. It was disgusting, too. Like, I always used to think about what the worst smell that could exist would be, and it was a gremlin that you blow up in the microwave. uh <laughs> but it that's some good special effects some good puppetry and animatronics ever. yes yes and also like it's a you know like
2: a christmas enough movie it's a little bit Christmassy. it's one of those christmas
3: halloween movies
2: yes yes where you're like i get to watch this from the beginning of october through the end of december as many times as i want and my parents are like oh wait we're not there so we don't care <laughs> lol Okay. So let's talk about these movies. We were going to do them in chronological order of when they were released. So the first film, which is the one I chose, or one of the ones I chose, which is called Cat People. It is from 1942. And I chose it because I don't watch that many horror movies. And all the movies that I wanted to suggest, I was like, that's too popular. That's too recent. That's too misogynistic. That's too. And then I had like a little bit of a meltdown. Then I found Cat People and was like, this looks like exactly what I want to watch. And oh my God, I fucking love it. It is so, so good. The base premise is there's this foreign, she's Slovenian, I believe, woman who she's so sexy and this guy likes her so much. And he's like, "Mm, you're going to be my wife. Then like cut to, they're married. And she's like, well, I can't kiss you or have sex with you because if I do, does he turn into the cat? Does she turn into the cat if she kisses him? She would I can't. turn what into happens? a cat and like, okay, she would eat him turn alive. to a panther. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She would turn to a panther and like eat his face. And so she's like, I cannot kiss you, my love. And he's like, oh, it's okay. I'll always love you. And then essentially is like, JK, I'm in love with this lady I work with. And Cat Lady's like, I'm not here for that. I think I'll eat your face. And that's why I liked it. I think it feels super queer as a movie. Her relationship to being in this marriage is like, I don't know, like, I read someone writing about it that I feel like a very bi movie. And I'm like, sure, I, 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 I buy that. But I also uh-huh. feel like she just wants to, like, hook
3: up with the lady that works with the guy that she's married to. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, that's who she follows around, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's
3: very high on how queer is this movie.
1: it does rate very high um (laughs) it is definitely that right because the whole time she has i would say a passing interest in her husband (laughs) and you're supposed to believe that she is driven to murderous rage because she just has to have this guy that she is not that into and it's kind of like the whole time she is more clinging to heteronormativity than she is clinging to the person Which we see (laughs) as gay people, we've probably dated somebody who did that a lot or we have been that person ourselves because there are moments where (laughs) you are just like, yeah, I guess she kind of likes her husband. But then every time the woman shows up, her heart starts racing and she follows her. There's all of these scenes of her kind of stalking this girl in a way, walking down the street after her and stuff. And you're like, yeah, I mean, she's doing it because she's going to turn into a cat and she kind of wants to eat this lady. But isn't the whole eating the person thing supposed to be the analogy for sex in this movie? Also, eating refers to a lot of things. (laughs) Yeah. So, like, I feel like (laughs) I I just feel like...
3: She did want to eat her. I feel like that was a bit of a slow bird for Sarah. She's like,
2: wait a minute. Sorry, I threw you right off there. <laughs> but yes, you're right. Anything about like a dark secret, especially like in the 40s, especially with women in this way, feels at least analogous to queerness, like the dark secret. But especially with like a cat, you know, and, and the way that it happens because her sexuality gets ignited. What I like too is it feels like at first... The film's saying, like, ooh, her sexuality is what's dangerous. And then it's like, ooh, her jealousy is what's dangerous. And I don't know if it's intentional or if I'm just, like, reading into it, you know, from 2020. But it feels like at the end, there's this twist of, like, oh, no, she's not the danger. The danger is created around her. And she's reacting to it. Particularly with the psychiatrist, right? Who's, like, this super creepy character And like her husband's BFF. And what the fuck? Why is he always telling her husband like what happened in their therapy sessions?
1: Oh, my God.
3: Yeah, that's a little bit breachy. Yeah, I feel like people
1: are pretty weird to Irene in this. I don't always love how people are to her. (laughs) I'm just like, hmm, that's weird. Because even the guy, she's just sitting minding her own business drawing and stuff. And this guy's just like, what's up? (laughs)
3: Ever thought about getting married to somebody? Me, yeah. for instance? <laughs> I mean, how queer is that when you're in a hetero relationship that you don't want to be in and you just spend all of your time in the other room drawing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a scene when she's eating dinner with everyone, and I don't know if they had just been engaged or just been married, but that woman is in the restaurant. And oh, yeah, so strong. <laughs> she walks by, she's like, are you my sister? And she violently talks all this shit about her that's not even internalized homophobia that's like what you had to do to defend yourself against Mm -hmm. the possibility of rumors you might be gay i mean
2: especially in 1942 right like especially
1: when you're already seeing a therapist and therapist might just be like hey i think you should get a whole bunch of shock therapy and or a lobotomy
2: (laughs) yeah Yeah, well, I mean, he even threatens that, right? Like, he's like, we have to commit her. Well, okay, so like, what I like about the movie is there's this way that the movie tries to present itself as like, you should identify with this straight guy who like, oh no, his wife won't put out. Obviously, he's gotta find a new wife. But you can't. Like, I mean, I feel no empathy for that character as compared to Irene, like Sarah was saying. If anything, she feels like she's overwhelmed. And I'm like, hey, I feel fucking overwhelmed, like, 24-7. Like, that is very
3: relatable (laughs) compared to, like, I don't really feel that much for, like, I don't know, is he an architect? And he's like— Oh, my God. And that part when he's talking to his coworker and he's like, I've never experienced sadness in my life. (laughs) Like, oh, my God, I have no empathy for you. Zero. He's like, I don't know what this weird feeling is. You made it to,
1: like, 28 or something without ever feeling sadness? What? Like, you didn't have, like, a pet that died or something? Like, what? We might call that actually a disorder. I think the people who are sick in
2: this are not the people we're being told are sick. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, all right. So, there's a sequel to this movie, of course. <laughs> I'm just like, of course, dot, dot, dot. The and end. it is called <laughs> Curse of the Cat People, which completely deviates from this film it has the couple like the couple who get married in this have a daughter and the daughter is weird basically like she's just odd and doesn't fit in and she envisions irene as kind of this queer fairy godmother in a way she just shows up and is like you're doing great everything's awesome you're great you're so creative and amazing i'll be your friend forever and like all this stuff And then the whole time she's like, "Yes, somebody who's cool and different like me. And it's not really a horror film. It's just a really nice Christmas movie for the most part. But then there's an undercurrent of murder, you know, somewhere in there. So it's kind of one. But that movie is great. And it's one of the best Christmas movies other than Gremlins, I would say. (laughs) Because it has this, yeah, this weird undercurrent of just like... It's spooky and it's weird to be a kid and watching that movie as a queer person, of course, is just like, yeah, this is a little girl who has all of these social faux pas and stuff like that. And the whole time she's just like, I just think about how cool it would be to have this friend who's this cool lady and all of that. And that's like what her interest is in the movie. And then her parents are just like, you're weird. And it's because you have somehow inherited (laughs) Irene's bullshit. And it's just like, but she's just A little kid and I don't know it's a really weird movie because eventually she does kind of end up conforming a little bit but then they kind of loosen up on her too so it's more like a compromise movie and it's kind of like I don't know (laughs) that girl's gonna come out in like 20 years everybody (laughs) in this movie is gonna be sad about it I think
2: and you were telling us that Both
1: films are directed by Val Luton, right? No, not directed. They're produced. Produced. Um, So he was a producer for the most part. And he had a contract at RKO and was interested in kind of making interesting horror films on the smallest budget possible because that's what they were into at the time. So he made a bunch of movies, but he made all of these really interesting creative decisions with them. So that's why Val Luton is still somebody that people really remember because they're just like... Yeah, he's the guy who did, like, Cat People, Curse of the Cat People. He was at least the person who, like, brainstormed it, right? And uh, he did, like, I Walked with a Zombie and all kinds of interesting horror films of that time. And the way that he does certain things in his films, like, he'll produce some of them, some of them he directs.
2: Yeah, Jacques Tourneur, he did uh, Cat People as a directing.
1: Okay, yeah. So the Cat People is where the origin of the Luton jump comes from so the Luton jump or the Luton bus basically is that scene where she's walking after the girl Irene is like walking after the other woman I forget what her character's name is and it just keeps showing their feet and then the girl just keeps getting more and more scared and the tension is building and building and building and then there's a bus that stops and opens the door so you hear that like and so like you get a jump scare but it's not real (laughs) like it's something that's completely ordinary that just breaks in and is just like oh haha you were being scared for nothing so like now jump scares are used all over the place but they don't have the same build for the most part that this one did this one has this kind of fast pace through the entire thing and it's really compelling to watch because at the time this was you know the early days of cinematic horror so you didn't have anything like that similar maybe to some extent but this was like the first time you really saw like a jump scare in a movie when it
2: has such a like a specific impact right you know the music rises the footsteps are rising you've got tension 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 oh oh wait it's not what you thought it was because you're waiting
1: for a hissing cat
2: and then Mm -hmm. it's like the hiss
1: of the door right
2: oh
3: i just got chills thinking about it it's so good yeah it's super effective it
1: is really good That's why Val Luton is one of the best-known producers. He wrote a few scripts, didn't direct anything, but he was a producer who was very hands-on in his production. So yeah, it's interesting always to watch movies like this and be like, oh yeah, also this was kind of like the beginning of them doing this stuff, right? Like it was kind of the beginning of film, you know, like they were just working out horror films.
2: It's so fun to watch old things like that because it, There's a weird way, viewing it from the lens of 2020, where it's like, oh, I've seen that a million times. And it's like, oh, my God, but that's the first time it happened. Like, that's so cool. And it has such a nice effect in the film because it's like, the film is very weird, too. Like, there's lots of things that I don't understand. (laughs) Why is this statue so important? Why did we just get a flashback to this weird king who apparently killed a bunch of the cat people? Or
3: did they kill him? I don't know. <laughs> Not clear. Why was she drawing basically a tattoo when he first comes upon <laughs> her? Like, he's all, what are you drawing? And She's like, oh, it's nothing. You can't see. I'm going to show you. <laughs> and then you see the piece of paper fly away and it's like dagger with a panther. It could basically just be a Sailor <laughs> Jerry tattoo design. <laughs>
2: oh, and then you were saying, Kate, like how how random it is when the other woman will call her. Is in the in the locker room and she gets scared.
3: Oh yeah, um, it doesn't make sense to me if you are in a locker room slash swimming pool and you are really scared for your defense mechanism to be to just jump into the pool <laughs> <laughs> instead of getting out of it.
2: Right, the- and like she's the one who first believes in the cat people. So at this point, she believes that she can turn into a, a like a big cat. <laughs> Big
3: cats like water. What are you doing? (laughs) Yeah, it is pretty funny, but it's understandable. Visually,
1: I think that scene is so compelling that it's It's like it's one of those things where it's like, I'm going to go ahead and shut my logic off (laughs) so that I can love (laughs) it.
3: Exactly, because you're like, oh, the reflections off the water and the weird light and how everything is kind of shifting really makes the whole scene work.
1: Also, by the way, back in that time, there was, you know, World War II propaganda films that were like, oh, you should hit the water with your oars if there's sharks around because they're cowardly and that'll scare them. So So I would say that we don't know like what her working knowledge at that point (laughs) would have been. For sure. I thought that too as I was like, well, I know about big cats. Like what the fuck does she know about big cats?
2: Maybe nothing. Yeah, exactly. Because it's also black and white. Like I think the other thing you get from that swimming pool is like you were saying, Kate, like so much reflected light. So it ends up being a very bright scene with, like, a dark shadow coming across it. So that contrast is super cool. I mean, the whole thing comes together super well. And it's kind of like um, like any tapestry. If you pull on the individual string enough, like, it'll fall apart.
3: I would also probably want to mention that they didn't really have any, you know, animal treatment laws in place at this oh, time yeah. in history. <laughs> so you might get a little turned off by, you know, these giant cats in cages and... A couple scenes with domestic cats and little bird and incredibly small cages. But, you know, nothing is ever, really, like, strictly harmed or yeah. heard on screen. So it's not horrible. It's certainly a mark of the times, yeah, right?
2: Totally. Like, you're watching it and you're distinctly aware of what year it is yeah. by just, like, the treatment of the animals, right?
3: Yeah, the fact that there would even be, like, three giant cats Right next to each other and just these bars with no terrain or natural elements in their environment. Oh, it's all Total awful. circus yeah. style. Oh,
2: totally. Exactly. But like it's also permanently where they're housed in yeah. the film. It's, that's, that's pretty sad. Yeah. Um, I also didn't go to zoos in 1942, so that very <laughs> may well be what it looked like. I have yeah. no idea, you know. <laughs> I did other things in 1942, but not, not the zoos.
3: Yeah, not your past zoos. life. You know.
2: I was Irene. What are you going to do?
3: Oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. i just thought cat people was
2: super duper fun i really really enjoyed it um but our next film which came out about 21 years later exactly 21 years later in 1963 is the haunting and that was chosen by you sarah
1: yeah so the haunting 1963 this is one of my very favorite movies of all time i love this movie i watched this movie forever ago for the first time i think it was tcm at like one o'clock in the morning or something and i was watching it and i was just like oh my god who is this person with like a black turtleneck and long necklace who shows up (laughs) like being very clearly gay i just remember everything about this movie from as far back as i was watching like older films pretty much and it's based on the shirley jackson story of course the Haunting of Hill House, which has been adapted multiple times. And this time was the first film adaptation. And the way that they shoot it, it's like the story of Eleanor, Theo, boring dude and other dude who doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> Some men. It's
3: really no, not Just important. a couple guys.
1: <laughs> no, Theo, blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. So... <laughs> dr markway is actually like the one guy's name and i think the other dude is named luke Luke, so dr markway is there because he wants to prove that spirits exist and the whole time he i mean he opens the film just like theorizing and being like ghost haha my hobby blah 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 yeah it's so funny his voiceover is like a bunch of people died fortunate for me I know. He's so weird. And he so he, of course, continues to toy with people's lives because he has money and that's what the rich do. So he compels Theo and Eleanor. Eleanor, who is somebody who had a psychic thing whenever she was young. And then Theo, who is psychic lesbian at her finest and wears black turtlenecks and definitely is gay and then Luke is just somebody who wants to turn it into like a bar or something (laughs) like what are you how are you going to turn this into a bar it's in the middle of nowhere but it's a giant house they go to it to prove that ghosts exist and they're just like haha this will never happen except for Theo who knows what's up and then everybody of course has to be like oh god this house is haunted as hell so it is extremely haunted, it turns out. And that is what this movie is about. It is so good.
3: It's a Theo movie. It's well, the Theo movie. Yeah, it is, it
1: is a Theo movie.
2: <laughs> it's really
3: like
1: spotlight on Theo. <laughs> well, I, there's just like this
2: moment. And I remember when we when we did the recording the first time, we all three talked about it. But it was like, Theo's talking about like her artist's like life. And, and we like to do this. And we like to do that. And we do all these things. And Nell is like, oh, are you married? And there's like a beat. And then Theo's like, no. And you see Eleanor clock what that means. And she goes on, you know, like, I'm sure you'll talk about it more, Sarah. Like she calls her a natural. She tries to distance herself from her. But it's really this moment of like, oh, oh, oh. Where you can see like Nell really likes Theo and doesn't like what that might mean
1: about her, you know? Yeah. It's super queer. Oh, my God. This is like one of the queerest movies. So queer. Yeah. And Theo is such an interesting character. So in the original script, there was a scene at the beginning of the movie that was Theo is having an argument and the door slams. Right. And you don't see the other person, but the door slams. And then she walks into the bathroom and in the mirror and lipstick it is written. I hate you. Like, a guy wouldn't do that, right? Yeah. (laughs) And that's kind of, like, what they were going to start Theo's story out on whenever they were—because they give Nell, like, this long introduction. And with Theo, she just shows up, right? So they cut Theo's intro. She had her own intro as well, just like Nell does. Because in the book, she has a huge role. She's, like, half of the book, basically it's all through Nell's eyes all the same but or like actually no sorry it's not through Nell's eyes I feel like it's through like the house's eyes pretty much oh yeah that would
3: make sense I mean in, in the movie it's like it's definitely Nell is the main first person perspective we get her internal dialogue but Theo and Nell's screen time is way higher than the dudes even what they do in the house the first night that Nell and Theo are scared by the pounding on the door, and then they tell the guys what happened. And the guys, of course, don't believe them. They were all... We were all chasing a ghost dog in the yard, which you don't (laughs) see happen. Yeah. You don't see that, but you see the whole scene with Nell and Theo. So we believe them, but the guys don't. And then there's another scene where Dr. Markaway is in this room and Nella walks in and he's like, oh, this harp was just playing itself. And we didn't see that either, <laughs> but I guess we believe him because he's the paranormal expert. Right. Yeah.
1: And then, like, the whole time it's just like, well, we just thought it was more important to focus on Theo and Nell maybe holding hands in battle. Which is
3: great. Yeah. <laughs>
1: which is great. It is really interesting. I love this movie so much. There's like a few things that I think of. One of them being Theo. Whenever she first appears, I think she's so interesting. Like, the way that she enters the room, she's like just immediately so captivating. And you can understand you know, Nell is kind of put off by her a little bit, even from the beginning. And you kind of see this sense of fear of Theo a little bit and talks about how like brave Theo is. And there's just kind of a sense of envy of her. And I think that that's something that we all felt (laughs) like I felt envious of Theo. Oh, my God. Um, Definitely. I was just like, oh, my God, you are everything. But then I also think of, yeah, the hand-holding scene where she's just like, that's not my hand or whatever. That was really interesting. I think of the scene where Eleanor calls her unnatural because that is one of the most impactful scenes. I would say the most impactful scene of the movie because it is all about Theo's lack of response to Eleanor just kind of openly being homophobic to her. Like, she calls Theo unnatural and Theo just, like, looks at her like, oh, shit, like, you did that. (laughs) You just said that.
0: Yeah. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Hello, my name is Alison Larkin, and I'm a writer, comedian and narrator and host of The Jane Austen Podcast. This podcast brings Jane Austen's stories to the 21st century, along with commentary from me and conversations with fascinating people who all share a love of Jane Austen. And of course, we had to start with none other than pride and prejudice. So join me as we embark on a journey through some of the most wonderful stories I know. The Jane Austen podcast with Alison Larkin is available wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Theo visually is based on lesbians. Like, yeah. that's like what lesbians looked like back yeah. then. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, and if Theo walked into like a lesbian bar in 1963, everyone would be like, oh, hey, what's up? <laughs> Yeah, no, she's dressed, like, fashionably, but, like, minimalist, and she's, like, trying to, like— avoid people that's another thing that i think of is like whenever luke puts his hands on her shoulders and she's just like don't touch me like that is one of my favorite scenes in a movie ever that is so good because when do you ever get to see a woman do that in a movie just be like no keep your goddamn distance yeah like, don't see it
3: especially for the young cad character like russ Tammum plays just i'm just a young attractive party dude I can do whatever I want. I know. I hate it
1: so much. Theo would be put in the same position of any other female character of just being like, "Uh, uh, uh, uh," you know, like, whatever. Oh, now he's won my heart. Like, either to laugh it off or to reciprocate, right? And in this situation, Theo, in no uncertain terms, is just like, back off. Do not touch me. And I think that that is, like, just inspirational. <laughs> like, there's just so many things about it. And that they're all things that mark her as a queer character. There's not really any denying it.
2: Well, and, and I like, to you, you had mentioned that sometimes people see that that relationship as negative or, or predatory. Predatory,
1: yeah. The actor that plays Theo, Claire Bloom, had called her character predatory like I don't know how much she thought about that before she said it or you know whatever I'll forgive you know whatever because I see and people are from a different era and stuff like that so the fact that Theo is establishing what her boundaries are and actually openly flirting with Eleanor, I guess at that time, probably could have been seen as predatory since gay people were all seen as predatory. Sure, exactly. Either, either predators or victims, right? Yeah, but
2: what I, what I see is like a different, like an an alternative to that, right? Like Theo is protective. Yeah, Theo puts herself between Nell and the knocking. She's like, well, I guess you can't sleep alone. I'll come sleep in your bed with you. And yes, there's a flirtatiousness to that. Yes, there's a way she's sort of chiding her homophobia but there's also like a real desire to take care of Nell and to see that Nell is not doing well right but where the men are all yeah but when the men do decide to do something they're like oh get rid of her
3: yeah and they're all very patronizing they're Mm -hmm. all oh we should have sent you home forever ago and Theo's like maybe you need to not get so wrapped up in the house stop letting the house work its magic on you But isn't like, we just need to send you away. She understands the situation. She understands that Nell doesn't have anywhere else to go. And she warns her about being in love with Markway, right? Yeah. Where she's like,
2: don't fucking do that. And Nell is like, you know, denial. And I think there's so much going on for Nell, right? Like She's literally being haunted. She's like, the house is talking to her. And she's got some queer shit going on. And she's got some weird, I'm going to say daddy issues going on with the professor. It would seem messy if I just described a film like that, but it's not. It's tight and it's it's taught, like emotionally taught too, where where there's just, there's so much happening and it it's just so fucking good. I, I loved the 1999 haunting because that's what the first one I saw. And upon rewatch, <laughs> I, you know, I have some qualms, but I think the places where it's strongest actually come from this adaptation and obviously the source work, the original work as well. There's just so much emotional depth and real mind bending horror, right? Like, there's a point where, and Kate, you pointed this out last time, where one of the doors swells.
3: Yeah, that was one of the more visual, practical effects in the movie, other than just the extreme camera angles and everything they were taking to create this sense of, you're talking about this, Sarah, how. Every scene is shot with this weird disorienting camera angle and all of the mirrors. And And claustrophobia, right? Like, they're manufacturing claustrophobia in this enormous house.
1: So they do all of these bizarre, you know, overhead shots and... All kinds of things that wouldn't really work. And then, of course, in the end, they have that staircase, right? And the staircase is literally almost its own effect. Like, they are looking down on the staircase. Like, you're seeing the staircase shake and stuff like that. Like, they do a lot with basically nothing. It's pretty interesting to see.
2: Yeah, totally. It's so good. It's so, so good. Yeah, to take, like, four actors and then, like, a fifth one who comes in towards the end, put them in a a fucking huge house and film it. Wow. Way to go. What a great movie.
1: I loved it so much. I was so glad you picked it, Sarah. It is my favorite. Theo is my wife and/or my ideal self. Both I was going to say: yep, yeah. when she comes on screen, you're kind of like, Sarah, what are you doing? <laughs> she does kind of look like me, right? Like, I almost yeah. like manifested it or something whenever I was 12 and like goofy and awkward and a little punk rocker. I like, was this just like, this is where I'm going. I'm going <laughs> to be. The turtleneck-wearing lesbian um, (laughs) who is kind of based on Susan Sontag, just like all of the lesbians of that time. Literary lesbians who are a little bit predatory are literally all based on Susan Sontag, who like shows up wearing a turtleneck sweater and is intellectual. So people are like,
3: ah! Oh, yeah.
1: Watch out for her. She's not only a psychic, but... (laughs) a lesbian yeah she's a lesbian and smart yeah it's like all of these things that terrify oh and has clear boundaries yep well it's it's wow i think the haunting i'm gonna watch it so many more
2: times i think it's gonna become one of my like every year around halloween watches because it's so compelling and it's so scary especially for a film made in 1963 like it's really quite terrifying and i love that i'm just so excited Unfortunately, we have to move on. So, the next movie we have to discuss is Life Force. We're going to jump 22 years into the future. This one is from 1985, and Kate, this one was your choice. Tell us about it.
3: Yeah, this is a sci-fi horror movie, which is regrettably probably my favorite subgenre of horror just because there's so many bad sci-fi horror movies, but they tend to be a lot of fun. This one included It's directed by Toby Hooper, who's known for, like, Poltergeist and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's based on a book called Space Vampires, and that's literally just what it's about. Oh, my God. I did not catch that it was based on a book that is (laughs) called Space Vampires. I love that. I knew I was going to love this movie from the very beginning because these astronauts are investigating this spaceship that's, like, in the orbit of Halley's Comet. And when they go out on their spacewalk to go investigate— the hatch that opens on the side of the spaceship looks exactly like a coffin. And I was like, okay, that's a little heavy-headed, but I'm fucking in. Anyway, these astronauts end up taking some of these vampires back to Earth, and they just start wreaking havoc. There's two guy vampires and one head lady vampire. Head lady vampire. <laughs> head lady vampire. <laughs> yeah, she's basically the HBIC She is, vampire. and she's so nude. Yeah, she's naked for the first 30 minutes of the movie, at least, fucking shit up and electrocuting people. The vampires don't suck blood, they suck life force, which manifests in this blue electricity from people's faces to people's <laughs> faces. So the lady vampire sucks life force out of people's faces, usually right before a kiss or right after a kiss. And the dude vampires. You don't really see a lot of them actually turning people or anything because their main job is to funnel energy from all the people into the HBIC. So the main character, also regrettable, is this tool named Carlson, (laughs) Carlson. Carlson's name is (laughs) perfect in the most hilarious way because he has all these epic moments in the movie, but his fucking name is Carlson. So... HBIC at one point near the end of the movie, she's like, The web of destiny carries your blood and soul back to the genesis of my life form Carlson. <laughs> it doesn't really match up. Maybe he should be called something more epic, but he's pretty much a jerk. He's the basically the thrall of this vampire. And she's in his dreams. She's fucking him in his dreams. He can see inside of her mind, and she can see inside of his mind. There's an amazing cameo with Patrick Stewart because she can switch bodies and she jumps into Patrick Stewart's body. So funny. And there's this whole beautiful moment where she's talking in her voice and Patrick Stewart's voice at the same time. My bandmate actually ended up sampling that part in a church fire song called Warm Bodies, if you want to check it out. I love this movie mainly because it's just completely over the top. When people are scared, they scream bloody murder. When there's something bad happening, like all hell is breaking loose. There's some gore... There's tons of chaos and overreacting in general and overacting. I thought it was super fun.
1: I like the Patrick Stewart appearance. I also, through the whole thing, was like, Oh, maybe he just, like, looked hella different in 1985, because that was when he was young, even though literally Star Trek Next Generation <laughs> started, like, five years later or something. Not even, right? Not I even, had, like, even three, three years. years later, yeah. Oh, my God. So, I was just like, oh, I'm sure he'll look completely different. So, through the entire movie, I was assuming he'd have a much bigger role. So, I kept being like, is that Patrick Stewart? <laughs> <laughs> but you forget that because he's alopecia, he's looked the fucking same for forever. Yeah. Right. And then, whenever he finally shows up and is just like, I love you, Carlson.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And then they almost kiss. There's this very close, almost kiss moment between Carlson and Patrick Stewart. Yeah. Yeah. Possessed, but still. And also, that guy,
1: Carlson, is like losing his shit through this entire (laughs) movie. Yeah.
3: It's fucking funny to me because he's a good actor for that role. He's screaming his ass off. <laughs> All of his lines are over-delivered. It's super dramatic.
2: It's so over the top. I love this film so much. I feel like I don't mind that its ambition outpaced its reach. You know, like it. it it's just, it's kind of cute. It's okay. You, you got scientists in space meeting vampires who look like bat people, but also look like sexy women. Cool. Uh, Then they come to Earth, and they feed off of people, and people die. Oh, oh, no, they don't. They turn into zombies that are (laughs) are also vampires. Vombies? I don't know. It's hilarious. And then it's like there's all this, like, religious symbology, right? Like, they're in a church when the mothership, like, is pulling the life force out of, like, the planet. There is not a piece of this that isn't just campy delight. You know? It's just— Why does she need to be so naked all the time? I mean, I don't have a problem with it. She has the most perfect tits I've probably ever seen. Like, great. But they'll, like, frame it where it's It's perfectly (laughs) right beneath her breasts, right? Right. You're like, okay.
3: (laughs) For her in the beginning of this movie, it's like escaping from this research facility being completely naked around all these military guards is actually pretty good defense for a little while yeah totally good <laughs> but, point you know they don't even know what they're looking at of course she has psychic powers and she can make people drawn to her just she so can suck their life force out she doesn't need the physical effect I mean they work it into the plot <laughs> they're like how can we get away with having a naked woman in this movie right it's, Still so at it's so funny it's so funny the whole funny. time
1: yeah they're all freaking out about it and I'm just Just like, why don't you just go for it? I mean, like (laughs) Carlson is all like, oh, it was the hardest thing to pull myself away. And I'm just like, why did you? Yeah, You don't seem like you're having a very good time. Maybe just go for it. And that's one of those times whenever I realized that I would be like the most likely person to side with like the Antichrist or something. Yeah, totally.
3: (laughs) And at the end of the movie, I mean, I won't give it away or whatever, but you're kind of just like, just give in. Just give into the rapture that would be being a fucking vampire for eternity. I say
2: give it a shot. Why not? Yeah. Well, but she says that, like, you've always... Been one of us, which is very much not clear to me. Like, did the did the vampires come here at some point, and they like turn some people far back? Oh, like, right Is he a Three years
3: ago, like however it takes <laughs> yeah. for Haley's comic to come. Oh my back god, around. that's right because it's in <laughs> right in the trail of Haley's uh, comment. You
2: know, I love it. They clearly just blew out their budget, like yeah. on special effects and big like crowd shots, and so the makeup is like hit and miss. The acting's hit and miss. I mean, Patrick Stewart, you're like, dude, do you just kill everything you're in? And he's like, yes, I am an actor. And you're like, all right, good point. point." I mean, (laughs) Sir Sir Patrick Stewart, great point. I loved all of it. I felt like it was super queer in a very weird way where like there's a point where she's like, I looked into your mind and I found an image you found most pleasing. (laughs) And I became her. And then I'm like, so... Because they're actually like... They're humanoid bats is kind of what they actually look like. And there's just like something about, like, I love that idea. Like, A, he doesn't recognize her. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't remember seeing this woman. <laughs> B, like, how, it's just so funny that, I, I I love anything that's like manipulating men for being misogynist, right?
1: And that's part right, of what's happening. he is. Yeah. yeah. He's terrible. He's awful. He says like a bunch of things where I'm like, I don't know what kind of frame of mind I'd have to be in to say something like that. (laughs) Totally. I don't know if I ever could. Well, and then there's like that that brief period where she's
2: not with him, where she's like kind of out in England fucking people up, which is like pretty pretty funny. Like, because it's all like, they kind of posit it like she's seducing them, but being like a person who's been around men, (laughs) you're like, I don't think that's the full story here, friend. (laughs) Like, yeah. I'm kind of for her, like, killing this farm guy for basically no reason, because I believe she has a great reason.
3: (laughs) I mean, and they're treating it like a virus that's spreading around. Everyone's panicking. Even the prime minister is quote-unquote infected. But one of the funniest things about this movie is just how many inconsistencies there are with how you become a vampire, how you die, how you starve, if you explode, if you just... Get all desiccated and turn into it dust. It's hilarious to me. And the harder they try to explain it and the more time they spend trying to explain it, the worse it gets. It's so funny. Or if you, yeah, like you turn
2: back into your original body and then explode. <laughs> oh, it's good times, you know? It is, it is weird. You're like, is this a sci fi movie? Wait, no. Is this a contagion movie? No, wait. Is this like a zombie movie? Wait, no. Is this a vampire movie? And I kind of like that. I kind of like that it's like, fuck it, we'll do it all. <laughs> You're like, that's going to make for a weird movie. And it did. And oh my God. Did.
3: Like, What the fuck was even that scene in the helicopter where Patrick Stewart and the other guy were getting their blood sucked out of their face and it turns into this bloody glob in the middle of the helicopter. Oh my and God, right? <laughs> the HBIC forms out of this bloody goo for like half a second and then screams and turns into blood again and then she's out, and it's like, well, why couldn't she have done this before? And it's like, oh, <laughs> she was waiting for the hypno drugs to wear off. Okay, yeah, sure, 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 sure. There's sure, justifications sure, 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 for every <laughs> weird thing in this movie.
2: Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so fun! I'm so glad we watched it. Okay, so the next movie, also chosen by Kate, and we're gonna jump super far in the future, is Troll Hunter from 2010.
3: Yeah, I picked this movie because my friend Tom Murphy recommended it. And I pretty much always have to trust his recommendations because he watches, listens to, reads all sorts of interesting things. And he said it was fun. So I gave it a shot. And I feel like when I ask people about this movie, they haven't watched it. But it's basically just a cute, not quite horror movie, but still counts. Found footage type of movie set in Norway about this team of three young journalists who are trying to pinned down who they think is a bear poacher, and they end up finding out that he's a troll hunter. And he's this grumpy, kind of just sick of his job, working for the government, killing trolls guy. He lives in his trailer, and they catch these trolls on film, and they're super excited and realize that it's a real thing. I just think it's cute in this movie how they maintain the whole time that it's found footage, even through the end of it. Actually, I think my partner... Was halfway watching it in the beginning and working at the same time and she saw a little bit of it and was like, Is this real? And like, just I just smiled at her. It was like just keep watching like, you mean the like
2: 70-story troll? No, I don't I don't think the 70-story <laughs> troll is real. When she
3: said that, she was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> it oh,
2: is I so see. fun. I really like this movie. I just love the characters. They're all really good. I love that like they they dig into like troll mythology a little bit, but You know, there's that tension of, like, some of the things, I mean, these aren't things I've been taught about trolls, but it seems pretty clear from the context of the film. It's something that, like, about Norwegian troll legends. Some of them are fairy tales, and some of it's true. and, And that's, like, a fun tension. There's also, like, this whole through line of, like, the troll hunter works for the Norwegian government. And so, like, his handler shows up and does, like you know, press things where he's like, oh, this was clearly a bear. But then you also get to see him, like, use bear paws to make tracks. <laughs> it's kind of fucked up how many dead bears there are in it, to be fair. And then, like, the kids are so cheeky. They're like, why did this bear cross its legs? And, like, stuff <laughs> like that that's, like, really cute. And I don't know. But it was actually legit scary, too, right? Like, because there's times they get trapped by trolls and the trolls are, like, really violent. and
3: Yeah, there's some contention in that scene where... They smell the blood of this Christian man Mm. because they can smell you if you have Christian blood through the troll stench that you have to scrub all over your body. But yeah, all of the exposure to the sun, the troll hunter uses these UV flash beams to kill and catch the trolls, all the little things. But yeah, they had the, I think you were mentioning this last time, Sarah, it's just impressive what they're able to do with such a small budget in this movie. big part of it is the CGI but it's fun. It's different from any of the other movies we watched and totally, totally. It's very easy to watch. Unless you have some motion sickness stuff from <laughs> handheld cameras, then you might just want to be careful. I actually usually get
2: very sick to that. There were only two times I had to close my eyes and oh, it's that's like good. when they're being chased cuz the camera gets like too too shaky. But for the most part it was really beautiful and I mean, Norway is gorgeous. You get so many beautiful vistas of, like, the fjords and even, like, the the tundra. And what it essentially is 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 an environmentalism film. It's a film about, like, how humans, you know, at one point he's telling the kids this story. They, They built this highway. And because they wanted to build this highway through troll territory, he was sent in and had to kill them all. And he just massacred them. And there's this... The actor's brilliant, you know, who plays the troll hunter. There's so much emotion on his face. It reminds me of, like, a disgruntled old, like, cowboy in a way um, without, like, all the, you know, fucked up parts. Someone who's been through so much and is so tired of, like, what society is doing. And that was super compelling. I really, I cried in this movie because you, you could just feel his pain when he has to, like, you know, kill them. And that was, like, I thought really, really compelling.
3: Yeah, there's definitely some environmentalist themes, and then also a commentary about how bureaucracy and government can be so stupid. And there's that government guy that's trying to, you know, cover it up with bear tracks, and then there's that guy that works at the power grid. Oh, yes, yes, it's like they they run the power lines, and and the kids are like, "This is a
2: circle." You ever curious about that? That was so yeah.
3: funny. <laughs> yeah, there these electrical lines just run in a circle. Isn't that suspicious to you? And he's like, mm. I do
2: love the way that like these kids with their like fresh eyes are like, um, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And all these like bureaucrats are like, I don't know, never thought about it.
1: <laughs> I think that the kids getting excited about finding trolls is my favorite part and how it's kind of contrasted with like the jadedness of the guy who hunts trolls. I think that that was all really great. It's kind of a movie that's just easy to watch in a way and it has some commentary on it but mostly it's just kind of neat looking (laughs) like yeah has a lot of funny parts like it's done in that like you know mockumentary kind of way in a little in a little bit but yeah i liked it i think it's a really good movie
3: yeah and uh, aside from it being very fun and beautiful to look at it's really fun to listen to if you're interested in sound design or sound effects some of the troll sounds are really cool. Like if you have a subwoofer, get it out, bring it up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's
2: it's it's got a little bit of that that thing that makes Jurassic Park to me like a horror, right? Which is like the idea of something so huge approaching and you can hear it so much sooner than you can see it. And it gets louder as it gets closer and it's like very, very like tense and and scary. There's a great moment when they're like in a safe house and they're like only one hour till sunlight, and then boom boom, boom. And you're just like, Fuck! and that's really, really fun. Yeah. I, I would say like very adventurous, very beautiful, perfect amount of scary for me. I am a weenie. Um, and yeah, I just, I'm so glad you chose it, Kate. It was like a really, really fun, fun movie. So the next film, which is one I chose is from 2016 and it's the girl with all the gifts, which is an adaptation of a book. It is delightful. It's a zombie movie about sort of like the second generation of zombies. I think like maybe their parents got turned and they were in utero, or they got turned on experimentation. I don't know which
3: one it was. Do you know? I think it was the former. It seemed okay. like a bunch of women who were in the prenatal unit oh, of the shit, hospital. You're totally right. And the little zombie hybrids ate themselves out. From That's the inside. right. Super gross and awesome.
2: Yeah. So they they're like these zombie kids who like crave flesh and and are, like, super violent, but are also, like, kids. So the main character is this young Black girl named Melanie. The whole is set in the UK. She is, you know, very compliant. She wants them to like her. She knows all of her captors' names. She tries to be really kind to them, and, like, there's, like, this moment where they're rounding all the kids up for the experiments, because they're literally being experimented on by Glenn Close, which, like, what? Hey, what's up? And... It's like so sad and, you know, she's so compliant. She puts herself in the chair they're going to lock her into and she says, good morning, so-and-so, good morning, so-and-so. And she's so much trying to show she's like a good person, right? And so then outside of this compound, the world, at least the world of England, is just covered in fast, mindless zombies they call hungries. And so the second generation of children are like their hope, Oh, but what happens? Hmm, I wonder. <laughs> the operation gets overrun by Hungries. And so then Melanie escapes and she's like, you know, going around, like trying to figure out what to do and finds out she can control them. She can tell them what to do and the Hungries will. And so then it's just sort of her figuring out from there like, it's like a zombie adventure movie, but it has a really cool couple of twists. One is like there's a blocker, which I think we talked about a little bit last time. It's like deodorant. (laughs) Yeah, like a gel Uh, blocker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It hides what humans smell like, right? Melanie can just walk through the zombies and they don't care about her, but the humans have to have the blocker on. And that's like pretty cool. And then Caldwell, which is Glenn Close's character, is like, hey, uh, Melanie, you're going to have to die to save everyone because I can make a vaccine by killing you and dissecting you. And there's this amazing moment where Melanie's like, I don't think so. I think maybe this is my future, not yours. And it's like such a cool shift and it's such a neat power differential. In the book, Melanie is white, but it feels pretty important that she's black in the film because there's so much, you know, she's a young black girl and the, the woman who wants to experiment on her is an older white lady. And, you know, there's so much power differential there. And then it gets reversed in the end, which I think is part of what I love about it. But had you both seen it before?
1: No, Yeah, I saw it already. Um, I watched it, I think, not quite whenever it came out, but a little bit later. Of course, this movie got really good reviews and stuff like that. And it's a very interesting movie. Like, it's fascinating. The way that they kind of rethink zombies a little bit. This was definitely out in a time whenever I was like, I don't want to see another zombie anything ever. And then it was just like, dang, I do actually. That's how they get you every single (laughs) time. There's always one every couple of years where you're like, I do still like to see these movies. And Girl with all the Gifts was that. Definitely just incredible. There's so many great Parts of it. And yeah, you like everybody, you know, even the people who are clinging to this old take on humanity. I just think that there's something interesting about how this movie kind of takes a step back and shows the hubris of the world. It's just kind of like maybe humans aren't the best thing that we can have, yes, you know, maybe yes. it's just changing and you have to accept that. And it's just kind of interesting because it's being like, hey, these people need to let go. And sometimes I think that that's one of our hardest things to do as people is to like let go. But that's what this movie is about. So there's still sympathy even for a character like Glenn Close because... In any other movie, she would be the hero, right? Because she's just like, yes. I'm fighting yeah. this. I'm like going to the mat to fight it. But she's not considering that there might just be a completely alternate solution, which mm. is letting go of humans,
3: like, yeah. basically. Totally. And how she's all infected with blood sepsis seemed to me like a pretty good metaphor for kind of the whole story. Humanity is sick. And you're going to fight this to the end, but it's going to kill you. So toxic. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Ooh, that's good, Kate. That's
2: such a great read on it. I love talking to both of you about this movie because you always pick out, like, things I hadn't thought about. But that's such a good point that, like, her blood is turning against her. And it's like, that's how sick and how toxic humans are. I also love, like, the, the spore tower at the end.
3: Yeah, I love how the zombie infection is a fungal infection and how it manifests and grows.
1: Because how interesting... Mushrooms and fungus are because you're just like, oh, dang, that's like actually probably the most probable of all of the how to become a zombie kind of things because it's always like acid rain on your grave or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it used to be somebody summoned you you know and like all of that kind of stuff but I think in this one it's just like um no spores are weird <laughs> here's how they work yeah kind of.
2: yeah it's cool because right there's like the next phase of the contagion is the spore tower and, and in that moment when Melanie's like it's not your world anymore it's it's mine she like lets the spores out and that's like such a cool moment there I really like it too because there's like, you know, one human survives and
1: it's a human that like is one who is like I don't think we should kill them and let's build, right? Yeah. So one of the most symbolic things about that, right, is is that Melanie doesn't throw out what humans have built that's kind of the thing is is that she really is taking it just to the next place but she's also like teach me what you know and then I'll take it <laughs> you know into this new world yes and i think that that's interesting because a lot of times it would be like absolutely new world order we have this whole new society or something like that and it's just like no not here melanie is happy to learn from a human you know like somebody who's not infected or i mean i guess it, like we'd have to even think of a different word for it than infected right
3: right and so- It's not like this perfect world, this perfect solution. There are zombie movies where... You know, it ends with the zombies winning and it's bad. And in this movie, it's like at the end, the zombies don't have everything figured out. Yeah, they're taking stuff from this other history, but they're starting from square one. And, you know, taking this movie from like a civilization standpoint, that's maybe not, you know, humans, but an alternative to capitalism or something that's plaguing society. If we did figure out another system, it would take a lot of work and start from a very fucked up, elementary place shit that's a fucking good read on it too it's totally
2: i think it could totally be an analog for moving away from capitalism right like the move in caldwell's mind right caldwell looks at melanie and sees a commodity and sees a you know like a resource not in like a a collaborative or good sense but like in a extractive sense right and and that's cool is the lab metaphorical or literal (laughs) And how important is that? Yeah, that's fucking good. Oh, such a fun movie. Okay, one more super excellent movie to discuss. I am so freaking excited. Sarah, you chose from 2019 Knives and Skin.
1: Yeah. So there's a bunch of good horror films lately. So whenever it was, oh, let's do one new and one old, it's just like, Well, I've watched all of the horror films from all of the eras, including the 1900s and stuff. So I had a pretty wide berth to choose from. And so I chose this one specifically just because I think that it was underrated. I think not that many people saw it. It's kind of just a fascinating movie. I think it does some things that I've seen a lot of other people try to do and kind of fail at. And or it fills in these kind of blanks that are left. So I had just got finished reading Dead Girls, and it is about basically it has a bunch of essays in it, but the first essay is this writer talking about how Our society commodifies dead women, you know, sexy dead woman. It's like, you fell in love with the beautiful dead girl, like that kind of thing. And it's disturbing and weird. (laughs) Uh, And she goes off. Like, she definitely goes into shows like Twin Peaks and True Detective and all of that, you know, and kind of just dissects what we have going in our modern media landscape, where a lot of times it's all this story about these hardened male detectives and all of the cost that their job has on them. But then there's literally just a dead woman laying on a table like the whole time. And they're having these like, you know, other conversations and stuff. And we're seeing their character dynamics. So it is an issue, right? And the way that Knives and Skin does its storyline, I think, is what was really interesting to me. Because you have this trope that's really upsetting. And then in this, I felt like they use the idea of a young girl dying, like a teen girl dying, as the motivating incident right like that's what this entire movie is about is all of these people reeling from that so in a lot of ways it's set up exactly like Twin Peaks but there is zero sexualization of this kid and it's just a completely different story just by humanizing her and removing that and being like yeah she was a kid she was a jerk sometimes (laughs) and like not everybody liked her you know she was also just a kid And we all question through the entire movie who actually killed her because you're introduced to this giant cast of characters. And the thing is, is that nobody killed her. So there's Mm. no aggressor Mm. in this movie. Like, all of this stuff is a reaction to what happened, but people don't know what happened. And then when they find out it's anticlimactic in a way right oh yeah they just have to sit with that and that's kind of how death actually is in life like a lot of times is maybe there's people who are tangential to you that die or you know whatever and you hear about it in these ways and you get bits and pieces and that's like part of what works in something like Twin Peaks or True Detective right is like you have these pieces to a puzzle and you're being walked through it but in life nobody walks you through it and so that's why I think Knives and Skin was so interesting because it was a lot of people who were at loss and who coped really badly Mm -hmm. and like couldn't figure it out and had all of these conflicting feelings about it and then also primarily it's about people who move on from that right like by the end of it so that's why i thought this was an important movie is because it kind of does something that we haven't seen a lot and that's kind of the deal lately is like you'll see a lot of times women directing horror films and you just get a different world out of that because of all the shit (laughs) that like gets left out in a story that's written and directed by men you know usually they're like yeah that made that detective really sad but you know in Twin Peaks what's happening with her mom her mom is like not even a person in the movie she shows up every now and again just to be in hysterics and everybody's like oh well she's just hysterical all the time so that's what she does and it's just like she lost her kid and that's horrible. And you actually see the mom character be fleshed out here. So...
3: Yeah, the mom's having a trauma response and is unwell, but we actually get to see her be a character. And, and yeah. her grief
2: is so... It feels so real. And that's what I... A lot of what you're saying, Sarah, and, and that, I, that I found so compelling in this piece, is it it felt like so much more real. The teen girls that I knew, the, the teen that I was, those people could be dickheads but they also were like really good people who tried really hard to figure out how to live in in this society and i think it's a really compelling piece too in that there is a bad guy but he's just like a bad person he's not a murderer we don't see him do anything wholly violent small violence as i would say
1: but like he gets his comeuppance and it sympathizes with him to the extent, but like also doesn't ever let him off the hook. Like yes, the whole movie yes. holds him to account. Like that's one of the primary plotline resolves in the movie is him being kind of publicly humiliated.
3: Yeah, and he's not remotely the main character,
1: which is nice. Which is nice yeah and he's reeling too like you watch this and you're like oh my god this poor guy and everybody thinks that he killed her you know like that's terrifying but then that doesn't change the fact that he treats his girlfriend like garbage you know and also his girlfriend is lesbian and dates a really cool other girl which is nice and doesn't usually happen in these movies.
2: Yeah, their romance is so sweet. It feels like they keep it a secret less because they're afraid of what people think of them than because they found something precious they want to protect. And that feels really hopeful in a very different way. I also will think about them passing trinkets to each other in the bathroom stall that are all like they've been hiding them in their vulvas, you know, and like, They're all covered in pussy juice and like handing it over the edge of the stall. I will think about that for the rest of my life. That's one of the coolest choices to make as a filmmaker because there's no words. It's just them engaging in this intimacy and there's a way their fingers touch. And, you know, it evokes sex. It's meant to evoke sex, I believe. Tell me if you disagree, y'all.
3: Oh, sure. (laughs) It's a beautiful Gen Z queer story that... Being either Gen Xers or Millennials, when we were as young as these characters are, were supposed to be, there's no way we would have seen a story like this. I love that all the main characters are like young women and then like the one really
2: sad mom. And then, you know, there's like some other side stories about parents acting. I'd never made this connection before, but it's like kind of about parents acting like teenagers and teenagers acting like parents. And that that feels very real for a lot of people's experiences, too.
3: Yeah, it's a very kind of quiet, powerful movie. There's no jump scares. It's kind of like how grief can be almost dull and there's an emptiness. You don't even really know how to react. Kind of like that one Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode. Ooh, the body, yeah. Where it's purposefully quiet. And But this movie's very rich at the same time. There's really beautiful colors there's really beautiful music and all of the singing. Oh my God, the haunting. Yeah, there's all these different characters and relationships going on with the parents. There's the mime dad <laughs> who is kind of on the edge of the story. There's the mom that's all into puffy glitter paint and <laughs> making all those cards. And they're all very quirky and kind of add to the feeling that you get in Twin Peaks where all of the townspeople have their own side stories and make it really unique. Weird and interesting, but without all the misogynistic bullshit and you know, plus a lot of other cool stuff. Yeah,
2: I I think there's there's like two elements to me that make it distinctly horror. Uh, one is there's a lot of different parts where we cut to from like a scene that's very rich and filled with life to the dead girl's body. And it's her body moving as if it's being pulled by a string or moving as if like the center of her body muscles work, but not her limbs. And just like sitting up against a tree when she like, you know, died over there. And and I think that makes it really haunting and eerie. And it, part of what I see them doing there is is a function of weird fiction where it's like, what's real? We want to make you question what's real. And and is her body actually moving? And if so, what
3: does that mean?
2: That to me is just like, those are some of my favorite scenes. And I know that's yeah, fucked totally. in a way, but they're so beautiful and they're so creepy.
3: Yeah, they're compelling. You're like, what's going on? And is she actually moving around? It questions the whole reality of the story. Yeah,
2: and then the second element is—is—is is, is what you said, Kate. It's these uh, acapella remixes of 80s songs that are just haunting. And Sarah, I know you really loved
1: them. But what was
2: it that you were drawn to about them?
1: Oh, I think just that like it's such a odd way to as a, you know somebody who really studies filmmaking. There's not that many precedences for a film that just stops the movie to, like, watch teen girls do a choir a cappella song, you know, and sing this really kind of sometimes, honestly, like, just beautiful odes to, like, any number of things, I guess, and it's kind of how you see them cope, but then... They use it to help her mom cope, too. So, like, there's that scene where they're singing and she, you know, is actually sitting there and listening to them while they do it. And that kind of shows a healing in her. Yes. Because there's that scene earlier whenever they're singing and she's like, go ahead and sing this. And they're like, we just did. Yeah. And she's like, wow, I didn't even hear that, you know. And then, like, at the end, she does hear them. Like, she sits and, like, listens to them. And I think that that's interesting. So it's very interesting the way that they use it in this film, you know, is just giving this quiet screen time, I guess, Mm. to like young women is always something that you just don't see that often in movies. And it's kind of the stuff that like made me think of a little bit The Virgin Suicides and movies like that, where you're just like... This is kind of a horror film, and then also it's kind of just this really beautiful art house movie, but then it's one where it's like, I think people will, like, study this movie going forward and be like, this was something that was doing stuff that other people didn't really do at this time.
3: Yeah, it's different for sure. I think it might be Our Lips Are Sealed they're singing and that uh,
1: song. I can't uh, remember.
3: They do sing that, yeah. Oh There's a few, God. though, right? There's a few, yeah. They sing Girls Just Want to Have Fun and... Uh. Melt With You. I can't remember the other ones. Oh, my God. I just want to talk about every
2: fucking scene in it. It's just so good. There's so many interesting reversals, right, of things that we're used to in this movie. And I think that it has such a powerful overall effect. And it's like, it's the kind of horror movie that'll make you cry and then kind of give you a hug. And I loved that. I, I also love, like, there's a long... Sequence at the end that is the dead girl walking away from the camera and and like sort of waving back at her mom.
3: Yeah, like walking backwards, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. and it's
3: it's just really it may be super
2: emotional. I think it's like a really incredible film. I mean, these are all super fun films. There's like a reason to watch all of them, and they all do very different things from one another. I think it's fun that we chose such a an eclectic slate of films for this conversation, just sort of organically. But yeah, I mean, I think. There are parallels in different ones, but I think all of them offer interesting and or hilarious takes on what horror can do. I don't know. Watching all of these back to back to back over a couple of days really made me remember like sometimes when I think of horror, I only think of slashers or I only think of demonic horror, which I actually really like demonic horror because I think it's you know usually really funny. But you know, slasher is not always for me. And I think that these are all films that are a testament to the fact that like horror can do really incredible things. And I think I said in in last week's episode, what I love about horror is, is that it, it is a function of weird fiction or vice versa. Weird fiction can often be horror or whatever, but it's, it's because it makes us, it makes us take something we take for granted and look at it differently. You know, we take the dead girl trope for granted and knives and skin makes us look at it differently. We take straightness for granted and cat people makes us look at it differently. We, we take like vampires even for granted and then Life Force makes us look at and them differently.
3: And then Life Force spends 75% of the actual movie explaining the inner workings of how you become a <laughs> vampire and it only ends up making it more confusing.
2: <laughs> Which is fun. Um, but no, I, you know, I think all of them have like, they just for me at least help me think about what really is horror. And it's so much bigger than, than what I usually assume. Um, So I found this just like also very encouraging. And my partner watched all of these with me except for cat people and was like, wow, I really like horror question mark, (laughs) which is like not something they thought they'd be saying before that happened. So I, I don't know. Also, just like thank you both for choosing such fucking cool movies. It's been really fun to to think about them and and. Even just watching all of them was just such a fun experience. Even weird ass fucking life force. Like for all of its weird twists and turns, the whole time I was just like, this is amazing. I'm having the time of my
3: life. <laughs> I'm really glad I watched Cat People. I don't know that I would have caught that one unless somebody literally put it on the list. I probably would have gotten around to watching The Girl with All the Gifts at some point, And I'd seen the other ones. But watching all six of them over again together was a really random, nice collection of movies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm super fucking grateful to be on the pod with y'all. Editing this is like the funnest thing I do every week. But trade-off is now I have to listen to my voice for a while. So but you have a great voice. So like, what's not to like? <laughs> Nobody likes listening to their own voice. I mean, unless you're special. Me. <laughs> I've just become entirely numb
2: to it from having to transcribe my fucking like recordings.
1: Yeah, I liked all of these movies as well. <laughs> 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 yeah, Sarah, you'd seen a lot of them before though, right? Oh my God. Yeah. I watch movies all of the time. And also I got a huge jump start on watching horror films in life. So I just watched so many of them. <laughs> um, I think I had seen all of these. Actually, no, I hadn't seen Kate's movies. I didn't see, uh, Troll Hunter or Life Force. So I still got some new ones winter, out of this winter. one. And I also enjoyed both of those. Because both of them, while I was watching them, I was like, no other person would probably tell me to watch this other
3: exactly. than Kate. Exactly.
1: <laughs> that was like exactly what I thought when I was watching. I was like, these are Kate.
3: Like, these movies are Kate. <laughs> well, I have fond memories of Life Force because I put it on one time with my band and we had no idea what we were getting into. So it was a pleasant surprise.
2: It is a surprise, you know, like you don't know, like at, at all kinds of junctures, you're like, what the fuck? And they're like, you know what? It There's works. a lot of what the fuck moments in this movie for sure. <laughs> Well, that's 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 also the fun of horror too in my mind. But Kate, thank you so much for taking time for us and coming on this side of the mic. It is always so fun to talk with you about different fun things. We talked about Star Trek in, in 2019, I think. And now we've talked about these delightful horror movies. And um, if people want to find you on social media, where can they find you?
3: Uh, probably Instagram is the easiest way. My solo project is up there as Mirror Fears. And my band is up there as Churchfire666. I <laughs> love it. You can also search for both of those projects on Bandcamp and listen to slash buy music. Yes, buy Kate's music. It's so good. Thank
2: you both so much for this. This has been an absolute delight. I love this podcast and I love horror
3: movies. Thank you. This was so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: We are a podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So <laughs> we can't have it spelled out. It is B dot t-c-h-e-s-o-n-c-o-m-i-c-s at gmail.com and yeah remember there's no i'm bitch
1: if you'd like to support the podcast you can do so by rating and reviewing us on itunes spotify or stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts i'm sarah century and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and twitter and instagram still sarah century on those I'm Essie Fleenor, and you can
2: learn more about me at EssieFleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at
1: se underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at ChurchfireMusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at EarthControlPill.BandCamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize
2: the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization.